Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 18 of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. I am your co-host, Nashal St. Patrick Hewitt. We're back again, and I'm with my partner in crime, Mr. Santolki. Where you at, Santolki? Yep, yep, I'm here. Um, yeah, we, we're moving away from the test series. It was an epic test series between West Indies and England, but now we shifted from Red Bull cricket to um, the White Bull T20 franchise cricket. So the Caribbean Premier League is coming up. Obviously, myself and Michelle are rivals, um, Guyana and Jamaica, respectively. Um, and today, we've got a special guest to look at the inner workings of a franchise, particularly the Jamaica Talawas. So I'd like to introduce our guest today, Simon Preston, who's a, t- who's a reporter based in Jamaica for TV Jamaica. Um, and Simon's not just a cricket person. Um, me and him actually used to do a football podcast, Caribbean Football Weekly. There might be some of you who maybe listened to it if you'd followed us on social media. And I also actually met him in London when he was covering the World Athletics Championships in 2017. So Simon's an all-around sports personality, but he has also worked as an analyst for the Jamaica Talawas. So Simon, firstly, great to have you on the show. How are you doing and how is the current COVID situation in Jamaica? Hey Santoki, hi Michelle. It's a it's a pleasure to catch up with you all. You know, it's it's quite great to hear from you. Keep up the brilliant work you guys have been doing on the podcast, especially in Jamaica. There's been a lot of positive feedback about what's been happening, especially the interview you guys did with Joshua De Silva. It's quite intriguing. You know what has been coming out of it, the content, and it's 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 absolutely fantastic. The the feedback in especially within Jamaica, where COVID is concerned in Jamaica, it's it's being contained right now. It's just about an eighty percent recovery rate, so people are being safe and safe and taking the necessary precautions. So it's going well where that is concerned. I mean, the airports they've opened up restaurants, but yeah, everybody is is doing their best to to be diligent where where the virus is concerned. Great stuff, great stuff, and it's good to hear. I mean, my, my parents um, live in um, in Jamaica, so um, I'm often having conversations with them, ensuring that, um, that they're taking whatever precautions they are. But it's a, it's a bit weird, Simon, to always um, speak to them about COVID because 
I think what the deaths in Jamaica is what this must be still under what fifteen, if that. Um, Twelve right now. Twelve right now. Yeah, there was two deaths on Sunday, but yeah, it was ten for about six weeks or so. Yeah, it's not been that much. Majority of the cases have been minor and moderate, but not really serious or critical cases. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's, it's really weird when I have conversations with them and I'm telling them to be safe, <laughs> and then they're looking at what's happening in the UK <laughs> and, and you just I just wonder if um, I'm having the wrong kind of conversation about who should be who should be keeping safe and um, and uh, who shouldn't be but you know um, but it's good to hear that all is well and um, obviously that uh, uh, most most if not everyone is doing okay in the Caribbean but um, as that Toki says we wanted to do uh, with the with the CPL starting in just over a week, I think it begins on the 18th of, of August, we kind of wanted to start our prep work uh, towards the beginning of the CPL. Um, it's, it's, it's taken quite a while, and I didn't, I, I didn't envy those uh, behind the scenes at CPL to try and get this tournament together. It was a bit 50-50. Would it happen? Would it not happen? Where would it happen? Spread over two countries? Could it only happen in one country? But as things stand right now, we know it's going to be in Trinidad. As we, as we talk today, pretty much all of the players have now flown to Trinidad from the respective countries, uh, not just in the Caribbean, but around the world. Um, and it looks like it's actually going to go ahead. But I guess from the um, Jamaica perspective, and more so speaking, I guess, from a Caribbean perspective in general, did you sense the same kind of, question marks over whether CPL would take place as we were experiencing in the UK? There were quite a lot of doubts and scepticism about if the tournament would take place this year, especially bearing in mind the six islands, countries and regions in, in the Caribbean that host fixtures and would also Florida and America be involved at some point because the organizers want to expand the competition to as much places as possible, especially in the Americas region. So many, especially in Jamaica, were quite, I wouldn't say optimistic, but were quite pessimistic, pessimistic about even a tournament being staged this year because of the international match calendar was in place. West Indies were supposed to be hosting New Zealand and South Africa. So there are lots of doubts, especially with the T20 competition, the World Cup later this year, would that be, be changed? So where the, this competition is concerned, I think it's quite fantastic to see how the organizers have managed to put this together. It's going to be quite intriguing because these are strange times where where that is concerned its history is going to show us itself where you're going to have not a lot of rest days for teams and players you're going to have back-to-back games and matches an early game an evening game a game under lights so it's going to be intriguing times ahead where this season is concerned but it's fantastic that we're actually going to get some cricket under our belts and all six teams are basically together under one bubble yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, we'll get on to talking about kind of the current CPL season later on in the show. But if we just start from the top, Simon. So how did this opportunity come around to work as an analyst for the Jamaica Talawas in the first ever CPL season? Well, it all, it all began with football, you know, as you mentioned, in the, as you preempted me in the prelude, there was a sports yeah. conference sports competition in Jamaica called Set Play in 2010, where you're basically quizzed on sporting trivia, statistics and 
fortunately I came out with the winner and basically from those football experiences of being an analyst an opportunity in cricket opened up in in 2013 when Digicel started in 2013 and 14 the first two seasons of the Caribbean Premier League uh, reaching out basically to individuals to see their expertise in in these areas and with cricket a passion of mine you know I reached out and that's essentially how the opportunity came about and reaching out because there weren't any owners or anything like that during that period of time 2015 was the first time you could really see owners taking really control of support systems and squads and support staff and that aspect. So it really started through, through Digital in the Caribbean in 2013. And that's how the opportunity came to really hone my craft in, in that aspect. But it was quite a learning curve, I must say, because this, where the statistics were concerned, and that was uh, quite of a strength of mine. The video analysis was something new that I learned, looking at the strengths and weaknesses of batsmen and bowlers, team meetings and that aspect. So that's where it all began. You could say 2010 was sort of the genesis from a footballing standpoint, from, but from cricket, yeah, early 2013. And so that, that was the first season of CPL. So... How would, in terms of excitement around Jamaica and the Caribbean, was there much excitement for this tournament? Or because it was an unknown quantity, people generally didn't know what to expect or what it would turn out to be like? So before the CPL was launched in the summer of 2013, we had the WSICB, as it was called at the time, the Caribbean T20 competition. And it didn't really gain a lot of attraction. Yes, there was television viewership. Yes, there was radio coverage. But it didn't garner as much support as it could have because it was only West Indian players involved. But as soon as the Caribbean Premier League was launched, the franchises, there'll be overseas-based players, there started to be a buzz in the Caribbean. And it was no surprise that after the first season that the GDP of the English-speaking or Anglophone-speaking Caribbean grew by upwards of 3% because of the, the support that was garnered. You go to Providence Stadium in, in Guyana, Sabina Park in Jamaica, tickets were literally selling like hot bread, five quid, for tickets to the Caribbean Premier League in 2013. So you can imagine the level of support, enthusiasm. And this was coming off the back of being crowned T20 champions in Sri Lanka in 2012. So it was a nice platform for players in the region to have their own tournament because we saw the Indian Premier League having getting their attraction, Big Bash, Bangladesh Premier League. So the Caribbean was really the last market to showcase itself to the world, essentially. And I think the, plot, the, the product itself is a good one. There are some tweaks that could be made here and there. But I think that from the platform in 2013, yeah, I think there was a lot of attraction around it. Yeah, I think me and Michelle have always said the strength of the CPL has been the local stars, the West Indian stars are such global T20 stars. It's not hard to advertise them and promote them and get fans to kind of watch them. So um, 2013, you've been hired as an analyst, mainly working around stats and video analysis around the team. So what was like the first week of the tournament? How was it? Were you sort of just thrown in at the deep end and worked from there? Or what, what was the kind of like your plan as you kind of entered camp with the Jamaica Talawas? It was a... Uh... A slow but surely betting in process, you know, under coach Paul Nixon at the time and, you know, being assisted by West Indian statistician at the time, Richard Berridge, who helped them to their title in 2012 as well. So it, more, it was more of a learning stage in 2013, while 2014 and 15 was really a kick, kicking on stage of actually showing the players the actual videos and showing them the strengths and weaknesses of the, of the opposition. The coaching staff saying, OK, guys, this is the ground where the par score is 140. So if we get anywhere between 130, 135, then we have a genuine chance of victory. Team meetings of players, one player could really 
of the opposition could dominate half an hour of a team meeting. So from that aspect, it was more of a learning uh, incentive in 2013, but 2014 and 15 was more actual the application of the, the craft. Did you find, Simon, that um, being a Jamaican, working with the Talawas gave you an advantage? I guess I'm going to say from a cultural perspective. Okay, yes, not all of the players were from Jamaica, but I think in the early in the early editions of CPL, the, the Talawas is very much a Jamaican-dominated team. Um, do, do you think that eased your transition? I would say yes. There's not that the overseas-based players were were standoffish or anything like that, but I think I would say it helped in the transition, especially bearing in mind that in 2013 there was 11 Jamaican-born players in the team, similar to 2014, and 10 Jamaican-born players 2015. That was quite a smooth transition you could say being around individuals that you know with some individuals that I you know actually knew prior to being part of the franchise so that helped the, the support staff as well the assistant coach Junior Bennett the physios the the team doctor etc who were also Jamaican Courtney Walsh as the team mentor during that period of time so yes that helped when you're bearing in mind the only overseas contingent basically was a nursing dinner in and also for overseas-based players. So you can imagine that it was really, chemistry and cohesion was never an issue for, for the Talos, especially in those early stages. The first four years of the CPL, that was never a challenge. So for me, I think I settled in quite well within the franchise. There was a lot of good banter, especially when you have Chris Gale in the house. It certainly it was, it was a nice time. <laughs> so you, you mentioned the universe boss there. Um, if you talk about the, t the period you worked with Talawas, you had players like Murali, Sangakara, Chris Gale, Daniel Vittori, Jerome Taylor, um, Jai Wardenar as well, I think, came at one point. Um, what was it like working with these experienced players? Were they kind of receptive to what ideas and, um, um, what do you call it, tactics you kind of gave the players based on statistical evidence? Or was it because they were such experienced players, they sort of ignored it at some points? It was a bit of a teething stage for some of them, especially those coming from Australia and New Zealand. I mean, Chris Lynn, honestly, is one of the nicest persons you can ever speak to. He's the most receptive person to the media and all of that. But when they come onto a pitch like Providence and Guyana, which is slow and low, as you would know, Santoki, it's quite of a saying something to them and actually experiencing it is two different things. So for them to actually say, hey, you know, you're right about this service. You know, it's really hard to get runs on it. Adam Voges in particular as well. It's quite different from saying, hey guys, you know, the par score here is, is 135. And to them, they're used to playing on wickets where they're chasing down targets in excess of 200. So for them to experience what it's like in the region, especially at Sabina Park in the early years, to put 140 on the board and defend it. For them, it was sort of a new experience. But being around those sorts of characters, I wouldn't say it was a surprise because they were individuals that were open to, to the information, but in, but they were quite surprised, especially with some of the surfaces where a lot of low totals were with a par score for certain venues. Did you, so, and, and, and before this answer, you kind of mentioned um, 2013 to 2016, which is effectively the years you were there. Now, the Talawas had probably, let's not talk about last year, but the Talawas, <laughs> The Talawas have been one of the most consistent teams in, in uh, CPL. And in that period between 2013 and 2016, I think they won it in 2013, eliminators in 14, eliminators in 15, um, yeah. in 2016. What was 
your, from your perspective, what was the key to their continued success uh, during that period of time? Because from an outsider's perspective looking in, they'll go, well, they had Chris Gale and he was the best 2020 player in the world. High and handsome from Gale. 50 for Christopher Henry Gale. Within the camp, what was the, the key to the continued success? So in the, the years that you mentioned, especially 2013 and 2016, an, an individual that was key to that victory was Kumar Sangakaro, because in those matches that we lost during that period of time or were close to losing, the Talos averaged 48 dot balls a match. And that is, that's eight overs. That's too much. That's 40% of an innings. But when he's in the team and when he's playing well, we are averaging 32 or 33 dot balls. And that is a significant improvement because that's less pressure on Andre Russell and Rodman Powell at the end. And also less pressure on the top order as well. Chris Gale could actually take some time to, to get into the innings. So Kumar Sangakar's introduction into the franchise was truly special. And that was missing, especially in 2014 and 2015. Yes, Jar Warden came 2015 but he took some time to, to bed in and he also struggled in a number of games got out quite cheaply as well Chris Lane is a different type of character he will go from ball one 2014 we had O.A. Shah in the mix but he also didn't quite get going quite well it was always a lot of top edges or chopped onto the stumps so the overseas based players that we got into the mix it was about the balance of, of the squad, but Sangakara provided that, that balance that we truly needed, and it came coincidentally in the years where we won the title, 2013 and 2016. But the middle years, 2014 and 15, the middle order batting was the individual that was missing. We're a powerhouse batting team. You can see that from the get-go, the start of the season. Dan Zahaya, Chris Gale, Andre Russell, and company. That middle order was a big concern, and it's no evidence to see why the, the latter years, 2017 to 2019, there hasn't been that consistency. Interesting, interesting. Um, and maybe if you can expand a bit more on that. So you talk about the middle order. And again, I don't, we're going to talk later on about the construction of the, 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 the 2020 Talawas team, because if ever a team looked like a powerhouse team, <laughs> that's, what, that's what 2020 looks like. But um, when constructing a T20 side, and we've got quite a lot of people that kind of follow the podcast who are um, deep into their 2020 cricket, but when constructing the 2020 side and from your work with Paul Nixon and those who were at the draft behind the scenes and stuff, what were they going for in general? If you, I don't know if it's possible to even really sum that up, but the team had a core that kind of stayed from 2013 to 2016. But when they were right. around it, what was the kind of criteria that they were looking for in, in general for the Talawas? It's interesting because you had different type of characters. So 2013, Paul Nixon, and also back in 2016, Paul Nixon as well. 2014, you had Mickey Arthur from South Africa who worked with Australia. Bits. 2015 was Junior Bennett who had success with red ball cricket, but not so much with white ball cricket. So you just had different coaches with different sorts of characters and mindsets. But I think the glue in terms of that support staff that prioritized our batting when our bowling was also a strength of ours was Mark O'Donnell, who did some work with uh, the Royal Challengers Bangalore. He was the glue that sort of helped our batting. And I think his, his influence on the team was, was truly instrumental into the successes uh, of the team. And he started the process in helping us to getting our dot ball 
percentage in on the downward trend or decreasing. That was that, that big, big change where that was concerned. Recovery from players was a big deal as well, where the first year of CPL, there was a shorter gap between games and matches. Now there's a bit more time where a team can travel, recuperate, train, and then a next match. So I think it's credit to the CPL where that is concerned so the players can be able to get some time to, to recover from back-to-back games. Santoki, did you want to go on to Florida? Yeah, well, yeah. So let's talk about, I mean, I try not to talk about 2016 as a guy and an Amazon Warriors fan. I mean, boy, yeah, we got we got demolished in the final by Jamaica. But 2016 was also a critical year in terms of how the franchise was run because you moved three home games to Florida. Um, and I believe, was it Jeff Miller, your chief executive officer of the Talawas, had said there was a lack of support in Jamaica, which kind of, fast track to move to playing games in Florida and opening the market up there. So I just want to know your opinion, being based in Jamaica. How much of an effect did this have on the fan base for the Jamaica Talawas and also the performances of the team since then, the fact that they'd moved to Florida? Yeah, there were grumblings, especially in 2017, but 2018 is when fans really started to get on the back of the ownership of the Jamaica Talawas. So after the Talawas won the title in 2016, they were owned by uh, uh, an American-based uh, Indian family from, from Texas. So after that, they sold the franchise and they sold it to the Prasad family and also Jefferson Miller was the CEO coming into 2017. So that is where things started to go downhill for, for the Talos, where the ownership was concerned. So in 2018, we saw that transition where they only had two home games at Sabina Park and the rest in Florida, and the media was getting involved and there were concerns with the, the, the franchise being renamed from the from the Jamaica Talos to the Fort Lauderdale Talos or the USA Talos or the Florida Talos. So there was a lot of concerns, especially losing that identity, that Jamaican franchise. Who would we be supported on because it would no longer be a Jamaican franchise? Even the sports minister trying to get involved to keep the franchise here. And it looks like with the foreseeable future, it will be here. But from a local standpoint in Jamaica, there was a lot of livid individuals that especially players, Andre Russell, expressed his dissatisfaction about moving the uh, the home games to, to Florida because he said it didn't feel like home. You know, when he looks in the stands and he sees Guyana Amazon Warriors fans and Trinidad and Tobago, uh, you know, Knight Riders fans, he said he felt absolutely disappointed about that. And you could see as soon as the team went to Florida, the performances started to dip and the results as well. And the wheels fell off shortly after that. If I can just jump in for a bit, Santel, here. Because, um, Simon, you mentioned the sports minister. I believe you're talking about Babsy Grange, yeah? Correct, yes. Yeah, so I, I'd like, um, because I'm, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are based in the UK, so I don't think they'll fully understand the, the kind of eruptions that went on. So I'm, I'm going to tell you what I know, and hopefully you can kind of fill in the gaps for me. So, sure. what, circa 17 slash 18, I believe, the Talawas ownership and Babsy Grange were essentially at loggerheads because if I'm if I understand correctly, weren't the Talawas saying that the Jamaican government needed to put more money into keeping the Talawas in Jamaica, whereas Babsy was saying that effectively the government couldn't afford it and that they were too much money to keep the Talawas there, then the the ownership of the Talawas were retorting by saying, but we make so much money for for Jamaica when when CPL uh, um, is in town. And I, the reason I wanted to talk on that is because I kind of watched that from the outside perspective, not knowing who was telling the truth. Um, I presume it's a bit of both, but could you kind of tell the podcast fans what was really going on there between Babsy and uh, the Talawas? 
Right. So it was in excess of a million US dollars for the season that the, the, the owners were asking of the Jamaican government to put into the franchise, especially from the 2017 season onwards. And the government said outright that we couldn't afford it. You know, we had a huge debts. You know, we, it's, it's still a growing debt. And if you even look at the, the foreign exchange rate, which it is right now, it's upwards of 170 Jamaican dollars just to get one quid. And it's continuing to rise day after day after day. So where the, the franchise is concerned and, you know, what they were saying, even though we were getting sellout spectators at Sabina Park, they were still losing money, which is quite uh, a bizarre sort of response because also merchandise was selling as well, caps, jerseys, etc. But when you look deeper at the papers, it looks like where the players are concerned, even though at the draft you get to see how much a player will be getting for the six weeks, the owners have the ability to top up the salary of a player. So even though you see Chris Gale going for 150,000 US dollars, he can double it, you know, based on his negotiations with the owners. And that is where the sort of the, the losses were coming in because the Jamaica Times Followers players were on seriously high wages. Andre Russell in particular as well, Chadwick Walton. And what you have to bear in mind, the overseas-based players, they're not coming to the Caribbean for peanuts as well. So that is where the losses started to come in. Starting from, I would say, the 2015 season, when you had Daniel Vittori, Rusty Tehran, Chris Lynn, and also Mahela Jaya Warden. And that was, you could say, the start of the, the debt. And also there had to be a couple of rearranged flights as well from the owner's perspective because American Airlines, you know, had a, a couple of uh, challenges where logistics were concerned with uh, Jamaica Tallow's home, home matches. So where aviation, where, where ticketing is concerned and also player salaries, that is where the loss or the, the Tallow started to go into the red zone. Hmm. So would you say it was a case of just poor management because no other franchises have had to relocate for financial reasons so what made Jamaica kind of stand out was it just the management of the at the time yeah, it had to be hands down, you know, Santoki. It has to be from the management perspective because the players can continue to give their 100% on the pitch. The support staff also were committed to the project as well. There's no falling out between support staff and players and the, the owners. So it had to be the, the management, you know, because for them, it was all about bringing their family as well to the Caribbean, bringing their husbands and wives and aunties and uncles and filling up two or three boxes in Sabina Park. You know, that was a priority for them, taking pictures with the, with the players. When in actual reality, there, there are certain aspects of the franchise and certain aspects of the players that needed a bit more support. Like, for example, arriving at a venue or arriving in an island with ample time, you know, to getting to know the surface and, and the pitches, that would have been more of a priority. Mm. Interesting. When you... St what, why did you step up? Well, sorry. What happened in 2016 then? So Talawas win again in 2016. Right. They uh, destroy Guyana, Santoki, in case you don't remember. And... Um, <laughs> 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 and then what, Simon? How comes you st you stop working with Talawas? So the owners of the Jamaica Talawas during that period of time of that successes, especially from 2014, was Ron Parikh and Manish Patel. Great guys, great ownership. They really loved and, and supported the Talawas immensely. I believe they're doing some work with the Barbados Tridents now. They decided to give up the ownership to Jefferson Miller and company. So Jefferson Miller had an interview with me and he just decided not to retain my services. It was all about cut, cut, cutting 
he kept a few, just a few of the support staff from the previous campaigns, but not a lot of the, the support staff members. For him, cross-cutting, even after the team manager to, to, to 2019, Andrew Richardson, you know, what's the deal? And he said, yeah, they're, they're operating without an analyst, you know? So it, it's quite bizarre because I still think in any sport, you have to know the strengths and weaknesses of your opposition in order to really know, you know, how you're going to get the better of them. And many players, you know, took it on board, but it's quite unfortunate that different owners have different thinking, but we see that every day in, in, in different sports, different owners come with their different ideas and mentality. Mm-hmm. It is what it is, but I'm I'm not disappointed. I'm still happy with the time that I had. It was an eye-opening experience, and I'm I'm happy I got to work with some outstanding individuals. That's that's interesting. Everything you say, there's so many different angles to golf. So you leave in sixteen. Now, what's quite interesting is seventeen, um, eighteen, and nineteen. Obviously, the talent. Sorry, sorry, seventeen and eighteen. Obviously, right. are still qualified for the eliminators. I mean, I, I pre I pref, I, sorry. I prefix that with the fact that it is only a six-team tournament. So, you can, in theory, you should all be able to, every team should be able to get into the eliminators in theory. But um, yeah. the Talawar still maintains a level of consistency. But what was interesting is, so in 17, Chris mm-hmm. Gibson goes to St. Kitts and St. Kitts win that year um, with Chris Um And I think Dre Russ takes over the captaincy. And then we get to... Mm-hmm. 2019, Gail comes back after two years um, yeah. at St. Kitts, and 2019 was a shambles. Um, to the point where I, I just stopped supporting them. <laughs> that's, how much, that's how much of a shambles. I started supporting Trinidad instead. That's how much of a shambles <laughs> last year was. Um, what happened? What do you think happened, Simon? What happened to them last year? Poor team selection, poor management. I mean, it's quite evident. If you look at seven out of the 10 games that we played, we conceded in excess of 168 runs. Mm. So that really puts a, a, a mark of what happens. Two wins, eight losses, unacceptable. Savannah Park, which was once a fortress to Jamaica Talawas, was no longer a fortress. O'Shane Thomas, predictable bowling, especially short short and off, that was a big issue. When you have players bowling at an economy rate of over 10 and a half, you know, it's really, really not going to get you anywhere. Although we did have the batting options in terms of big hitters, once again, I still have my concerns about the middle orders. Glenn Phillips did well at the top, yes, but the middle order and the bowling options, not enough quality. It's a really, really a big, big disappointment. You bring in an experienced Durbel Green, his first year of the CPL, getting involved in the mix of things. There is a, a better way into managing things, but from the drafts, it was clear that this was a franchise that if they could get to the playoffs, that would be successful. And for them to see it finish at the, the bottom of the table, I think they deserve to be where they finished last season, hands down. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the bowling because for me, that's what stood out. Um, there was no one in the... Sounds harsh, but as I see it, no one who stood out bowling-wise last year. It didn't matter what the Talawas set, you knew that the opposition could could chase it down. And it it showed that if you do not balance your batting with a bowling attack of any sort, it doesn't matter how many six-hitters you've got, the the opposition will more than likely chase down your score. And they were found out time and time again. Last year, and I'm, it's interesting that you mentioned O'Shane being predictable because I think 2018 was O'Shane's breakthrough year, and I think O'Shane struggled a lot internationally, and therefore it went, kind of went into the CPL as well um, last year. But he'll learn. He's still he's still a young boy. 
Yes, yes, he's, he has time on his hand, you know. Um, I think, though, where he, where his bowling is concerned, there's still some work to do where the, the length is concerned. I'm happy with the line he's bowling. He's a tall guy, six foot five, so I know that he'll be, be improving. I just hope that he's not introduced to red ball cricket quite early, but where white ball cricket is concerned, then definitely he's going to be quite one to watch for sure. Mm. Is, um, is, is, sorry, because I don't actually know the answer. Is Gerard Butler still a part owner of the Jamaica Talawas? No, he's, no, his equity share with the franchise expired in 2014. So no longer, no, not anymore. He still fought, watches the team from afar, but no, his equity interest with the team expired at the end of the 2014 season. So was that, was that whole thing, was that just purely a business move or was it just genuinely because Butler had an interest in cricket in the region? I think it was just a mixture of both, you know, maybe the, a bit of a PR as well to show that there's there's some interest, you know, outside of the Caribbean for him. You know, Digicel did a lot of work with the CPL 2013 and 2014. So they reached out to people like Wahlberg as well for the Tridents as well. And also Gerard Butler as well for, for the Talawa. So they worked really hard to try to get to get some interest because in the first two seasons where television audience were concerned, it wasn't as massive. It was 2015 onwards where things started to where the wheels started to turn in, in the CPL. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So, yeah, as Mash was saying, 2019 was a terrible year for the Talawas. Mash himself, he, he, he threw away the jerk chicken. He started eating roti, supporting Trinidad. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I don't know who he's supporting this year. But now, I'm Jamaica back to Talawas again. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, this year has been dominated by Jamaica Talawas in terms of CPL news, but mainly for the wrong reasons. The main reason being the Chris Gale fallout. So for those who don't know, Chris Gale um, was released by the Talawas. He was initially picked up by St. Lucia Zooks, but he's pulled out for personal reasons. But he has come out publicly and criticised particularly Ronnie Sarwan, who worked as an assistant coach um, for the Jamaica Talawas. He called Sarwan as being worse than the coronavirus. He said that owners are unprofessional. Um, Andre Russell then came out and said it's the weirdest franchise he's played for in terms of how they handle things in a professional manner. Like what, Simon? How would you say this is unprecedented for a franchise for key players or former players to come out and be critical of owners and staff in such a public way? Do you think this has just been something which is building up for the past few years? Then, yes, I would say it's been something that has been building up for the past couple of years. You know, Chris, Chris is not somebody that that malices individuals, but he will hold in something until the right time to speak. So it's no surprise that he came out at. Ronnie Sarwan. I've never had the opportunity to work with Ronnie, but based on the experiences that he has shared time and time, that experience that he mentioned about Ronnie sending him home when you were back in under 19 days, you know, he, he, it's something that he keeps on mentioning time and time again. So it's no surprise that he brought it in the, the eyes and the ears of the public quite recently. Andre Russell, yeah, you could see the sort of frustration because the Trinbago Knight Riders have been at him since 2016 to get his services because as we know, he plays for Kolkata Knight Riders in the IPL, so the, the, the same ownership they would want him to to go over there, and they have been offering offering him much more money, but because of loyalty and patriotism, that's the only reason why he's saying staying, and it's no surprise why he's saying that this would be his last season with the franchise. So honestly, it's just a franchise in tatters. You know, sometimes they say that sometimes things have to get worse before they get better, but I think there's much worse to come than there is better based on looking under the team for this season. I mean, I, I was going to try and add to that, but 
Yeah, you said it as you basically, you basically <laughs> said anything that I could possibly say there. I think, yeah, you're, you're right, Santoki, because I think Dre Russ said it was the weirdest franchise. And as you say, Simon, he's pretty much signposted that he's done after this year. And I, yeah. I would be shocked if he doesn't end up in Trinidad um, for, for 2021. Um, but you, you kind of said at the end there that the team. So to be honest... I don't even know who's in the team right now. So many players have either dropped out. I mean, just we're recording this on Tuesday, I think. Was it yesterday or Sunday that um, McCarthy and, is it Javar? Had to, right. Yeah, had to pull out. So replacements are coming and going. Um, I think Jermaine Blackwood is one of the, who's the other replacement? Jermaine Blackwood and Ramal Lewis, I think. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, other two Lewis, yes. that have come in. But I'm looking at the team that they've picked for so i'm just going to read out the names um so they only retained a few players which made sense given how shambolic 2019 had been so they retained andre rovman glenn chadwick and O'Shane. fine uh um, yes. was signed but he's obviously left or can't travel i should say so they've got lamashani carlos brathway asif ali fidel edwards preston mcsween jerome uh, jermaine blackwood uh nicholas curtain Ramal Lewis, Nkrumah Bonner, for Sammy Permol, Ryan Persaud, and maybe one other, because I'm not sure who's replaced Shamsi yet. Um, I, I said that I'm back in the Talawas this year, <laughs> of loyalty. But that don't, if I'm really honest, a team that tell, that's not a team that I think can win CPL. If I'm really, really, really honest, I'm not convinced that team is appropriately balanced. Um, any views on that, gentlemen? Sounds okay. <laughs> I think, you know what, I think... Lamashani and Versami Pamul will do well on Trinidadian pitches, especially because they're using the same pitches over the tournament. Um, so there's hope there. A lot of teams are obviously going for spin in this tournament because of their unique conditions. I think Carlos Bathwaite, the fact he wasn't picked up in the original draft and they picked him up later on, he'll have a point to prove um, because not, not many franchises, Jamaica was the only franchise that wanted him. So he'll, ha- he'll be someone with motivation. And you've obviously got the firepower of Russell Powell. So, um, Blackwood as well. He'll want, he'll want to prove that he can play T20s as well. So um, I think there's a lot of players with points to prove. Heavy fire, heavy batting lineup, as Michelle said. And with the two spinners, I think they could, they could be a surprise outlet. But based on the whole atmosphere in the camp and the kind of tensions with the owners, I'm not sure if they will be able to work together and prosper. So Simon, it'd be interesting to get your predictions on this year's lineup. Before you jump in, Simon, just very quickly, and the reason, the reason I just wanted to add why I'm not confident. Again, right. I, uh, two reasons, two main reasons, actually. One, it's in Trinidad. Um, I'm not saying all the pitches, sorry, that's only two. But as the right. tournament goes on, it's going to take spin more. I'm barely certain of that. And it's going to stay low more. Yes, yes, there's six hitters in that team. But my concern is, so Dre Russ, Rovman, Chadwick, uh, Glenn Phillips, Carlos, if it comes off, Asif Ali, they're big hitters. My concern is, say it's not a say it's not a deck where you can get over 180, which I think is going to be the the norm rather than the exception. Who are the who's the number four? Who's the number four and five or three and four who rotate strike when it's difficult to when you can't just come in and blast six from the off? Do, do you get where I'm coming from? I'm not convinced they've got anyone in that team who can do that job. There's no one that can do that job efficiently for ten games for the season. Yes, you have Enkuma Bono that can do uh, bits in terms of rotating the strike and put away the bad delivery, Jeremy Blackwood as well. But other than that, the middle order, like we discussed, uh, 
10, 15 minutes ago is a concern. The only advantage you could say with this batting lineup is that seven out of the 10 games that the Talwas will play this season are under lights. So the due factor will come into play. So the big hitters have an opportunity to flex their muscles and swing their arms where, where that is concerned. And again, it's, it's the hurricane season in the Caribbean. So there might be some games where we, we may have a revised total in terms of chasing because we love to chase as a franchise. So that's something for Rodman and Russell to think about. And, you know, Ramal Lewis is no slouch of the bat either from his days at the Under-19 World Cup in 2014 in the UAE. He certainly has the ability. Rodman Powell will certainly strut his stuff as well. We await to find out who will be the replacement for Shamsid Jefferson Miller is trying to get another overseas player in the mix. So in the next couple of days or so, or by the time the, the podcast is released, then we'll have an idea who that individual is. But certainly we'll be key to see how the overseas players, players will, will mix in the mix of things. But like I was saying on uh, quite recently, there's no sign of a Krishmar Fantoki, which is quite shocking to me. I'm quite livid about it. You're speaking about an individual that's the second highest wicket taker in the history of the, the competition, 85 wickets, and 14 of those wickets have come in Trinidad, 13 at the Queen's Park Oval, and one at the Brian Lara Cricket Academy. A man that is known for taking wickets at this venue. The only man that has taken more at Queen's Park Oval is, is Dwayne Bravo. So he has that track record. Yes, his economy rate is, is up in the upward direction, upwards of eight right now, not the 6.22 of the glory days. But he still takes wickets at the end of the day, and he still has something to offer. Yes, 67 miles an hour is not bothering any batsman in the world these days. But that variation, that difference, that cutting edge of something different, versatility, the variety, can be something that the franchise could have used this season. Hmm. I think especially with the pace bowling attack, um being so limited in terms of O'Shane Thomas's inconsistency. And Fidel Edwards, I mean, as much as he's, he's been a great player for West in, in West Indian cricket, he's 38 now, so you're not sure how effective he will be in the tournament. So someone like Krishmar Santoki would have been a great benefit. Um, and also, a topic that's also got a lot of interest on our page has been Jermaine Blackwood. So he's obviously someone who's um, known for his attacking prowess in test cricket, but he hasn't actually played a T20 match since 2015. Um, in any in any in anywhere in the world, um, it's time. What is your reasoning? Why do you think even this tournament he's only coming as a replacement? Why do you think, particularly Jamaica, they've never chosen Blackwood um, in the CPL since so, twenty fifteen? Post twenty fifteen, we had a number of West Indian Test tours that clashed with CPL or overlapped, which is the reason why you didn't see him much. In the mix, there was one season in particular where he was picked, but due to West Indian duties with red ball cricket, he wasn't in the squad. But post-2015, I think a major reason outside of the, the West Indian duties is because of you know what he has been doing in that format. If you look at those performances he's had with the Talos 2013 to 2015, Coincidentally, or you could say surprisingly, he has soaked up a lot of dot deliveries. When you watch him in, t in red ball cricket, test cricket, he looks like he wants to hit every ball to the boundary. But in, in T20 cricket, he does take his time at the crease. Unfortunately, most of those occasions have come when the Talawas are under 100 runs with four or five wickets down. But he does take his time to get in the groove of things. But again, the Queen's Park Oval is a venue where he can thrive. He loves to hit Solomon Ben over there quite often. And also the likes of Seals as well, and Jalen Searles as well from, from Barbados. So it's a ground where he can thrive and has thrived, especially in regional 50-over cricket as well. So where, where the Talawas is, is concerned, playing games in Trinidad, 
none of these players, it's not like they'll be unfamiliar to, to the conditions and surroundings. It's just going to be about execution on the day without spectators. Another an, an, another quick talking point I also want to uh, quickly touch on is uh, Rothman. Um, Rothman's had a bit of an up and down time, um, I feel. It, by now, this is, is going to sound harsh. I'm a big fan of Rothman Powell. But by yeah. now, I think his stock is supposed to have been higher than it currently is. And he hasn't been helped by injuries. So that first and foremost, that's what's held him back a bit in the last year and year or so. But given how early he came onto the scene, given the century he hit in the World Cup qualifiers uh, for West Indies, given his T20 exploits, both um, for the West Indies and uh, for the Talawas on occasion, he should, have, he should almost be a franchise player in the, in the mould of a Gell or a Dre Russ by now. But he hasn't fully kicked on yet. Now, he's captain this year. Now, Rothman was made captain, when was it? When, I think it was when we went to Bangladesh. Was it Bangladesh or India? West Indies made him captain um, for, for the limited overs tour um, in Asia. And that was a shock to me. Even as a Jamaican, I was like, what? Rothman, captain of West Indies? That doesn't make any sense. But now he's captain for the Talawas. Is, is, in your dealings with Rothman or any conversations you've had with him, is, is captaincy something that lots of people see in him? Honestly, it was a surprise to all stakeholders involved in cricket, you know, spectators, avid cricket fans, commentary team, journalists in Jamaica. It's a massive surprise because they didn't see him as that sort of individual yet. Not that he wouldn't encourage team members, but that the, the, the certain qualities that are needed for a captain and a leader, it, it didn't seem like he had all of those qualities together just yet. And it was quite a bit of a surprise that he didn't tell his good friend, Andre Russell, who has captained the franchise, that he would be the man leading a franchise for the 2020 season because Russell mentioned it on his Instagram live quite recently as well. So the communication broke down there, but it was a private conversation with Jefferson Miller for the 2020 season. You, you mentioned about his up and down sort of form. Not being picked in the World Cup kind of took a hit to his confidence. So that is, is the start of it. But heading into this 2020 season, he's been working. It looks like he mended his relationship with Russell and they've been in the nets Con con consistently, especially during the, the lockdown period. So I think there are signs to show that he will get back to the, 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 the periods that we saw in 2016, but the bowling still for me is still a concern. But with the bat, he's certainly going to be a one to watch this season. With the ball, there are still question marks. Interesting, interesting. Um, Santelki, did you want to come back with anything? No, it'd be interesting though. Seeing as we've got two passionate Jamaica fans, your predictions for this season, where do you think the Talawas are going to end up? Uh, you can start. <laughs> I think if they can make it, I think their aim should be to just try and make it to the Eliminators. And I think if they've done that, they've had a good season. However, say they get to the Eliminators, there is nothing that should make them think they couldn't then go on and win it all. Because the, the one advantage of having the powerhouse batting lineup that they've got is, it, it, as I think Simon kind of indicated at it, once you're into the knockout stage of the competition, I think this year it's not even Eliminators, I think it's just straight semi-final and then final. There's not like the qualifying route as usual. So once you're there, you, you only have to come off twice. I mean, we saw what happened last year, Santoki. Guyana smashed everybody. But what... <laughs> Once it got to the actual, when it actually mattered, they yeah. got blocked. So 
if the Talawas can make it to the semis, they've done well. But once they're there, actually, it's knockout. It's knockout competition. Then anything could happen. Yeah, I hit the nail on the head right there. Just look at the team that won it last year, the Tridents. Barbados only won two of their opening six games, and they went on to win the title. So it's about picking form at the right time. If you look at the Talawas when they won when they won the the, the title, 2013 and 2016. The dip came before the playoffs. So you could see there's evidence that you have to peak at the right time. Guyana, I don't know why they didn't rotate players in the latter stages when they were guaranteed a spot in the playoffs already. But there's evidence to suggest that if you peak at the right time, then certainly the rewards will come for you at the end of the day. As far as your question, Santoki is concerned, where a prediction is concerned, I just think getting to the semifinals will be an achievement for me. I don't think they'll win it. I've given my crown to the Guyana Muslim Warriors. Oh, wow. <laughs> Come on, you two are supposed to know better than that. <laughs> Six times the charm. <laughs> Although, in fairness, in fairness, I hate to say it, um, yeah. I looked at this Guyana's team again and I was like, actually, they basically kept the same team. Um, so mm-hmm. There's no reason why they shouldn't do well this year. I think they'll do well. I think Guyana will do well as they always, they've done pretty much since the first season. But now it's a massive psychological barrier. I mean, it's similar to South Africa and and the label of chokers. I think that's kind of applied to Guyana because the loss against Barbados wasn't down to quality, in my opinion. It was just psychological in that they realised they were in a final and they'd gone unbeaten for the whole tournament. So to suddenly have this panic in the final means that it's definitely psychological. And the fact they've retained the core players who've who went through that last year and previous years means that it will obviously be a barrier that they need to overcome this year again. Mm-hmm. So, Simon, we've got one question left, you know, um, but I'm just trying to think, I don't know, how travelled are you around the Caribbean in terms of cricket, Simon? How many, of the, how many of the other islands have you been to? In terms of the ones that have played in the CPL, I would say about 10 of them, I would say. Guyana, Trinidad, Barbados, Grenada. Okay, fine. You're fine fine then. So you're all set to answer this question. It's all good. So we always end the podcast with the same question about who the guest is on the podcast. Um, So we've had the great Ronnie Sarwan on, uh, as you know, uh, obviously Josh De Silva was on. And what we say to every guest at the end is they need to tell us what is the best ground to watch cricket in the Caribbean. Now, as a Jamaican, you can't say Sabina, but that's all right because nobody wants to say Sabina anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the only person that ever says Sabina. Um, And actually, before you answer, Simon, why why do you think people don't say Sabina as a ground to watch cricket in? People don't want... They claim it's not... They claim the atmosphere isn't as good as it is in other Caribbean islands, but I've been at a Pat Sabina. Mm-hmm. Listen, it's, it's, a, it's a crescendo of noise in a, in a, in a pack. So, um, but um, touch on that if you want. But the, the actual question is what's the best ground you've been to, to outside of Savannah uh, to watch cricket in the Caribbean? The best ground I've been to to watch cricket, there's two that I'm toying with, but I'm going to give the nod to Providence Stadium, to be honest with you. And oh, wow. honestly, honestly, it wasn't even during a game where. There was a result. It was a no result. Guyana Amazon Warriors against Talawas 2015. The atmosphere, the vibes, everything that was put together for that product. You could see the passion throughout the course of the fans. From rain entered the stadium to, till the rain left. Everybody was there cheering on the team. The yellow and green flags all around Providence Stadium. For me, that atmosphere 
it's difficult to beat in the Caribbean for T20 cricket. That is just a fantastic sort of atmosphere to be into. I wish I had the opportunity to feel what it was like to be at Arnest Valence and Vincent because that also has an atmosphere as well. But outside Jamaica, I would give the nod to Providence Stadium and then just after them, Queen's Park Oval in Trinidad. It's always the same two. <laughs> it's always the same two answers. It's either Queen's Park or Providence that everybody says. Why not Jamaica, though, Simon? Why do you think people don't say Jamaica? What's, what's wrong with us? Why do people love Sabina? It's, it, it's a bit bizarre, you know, quite head-scratching head because the, the atmosphere is, is quite electric. It's not a passive sort of crowd. There's noise from ball one to ball 120. There's alcohol, there's rum, people drinking in the stands. It's quite an interesting one, perhaps because the, the, in terms of capacity, it's not the same at like Kensington in, in Barbados or Queen's Park Oval in Trinidad, which is just, just a shade less than Sabina. But I'm not sure why people don't have that same rapt atmosphere because the, the, the spectators are, are out in their numbers to the same extent. Is it the quality of the cricket on the day because of the pitch at Sabina Park, not as good as Queen's Park Oval in Trinidad or St. Lucia at the Darren Sami Stadium? It's, it's a difficult one for me because I personally enjoy cricket at Sabina Park. I personally enjoy it. I don't know why nobody else doesn't enjoy it, but for me, it's in my top three in terms of bounds grounds across the region to watch in. Well, I'm, I'm, I, do you know what? Ultimately, I just said that to you so I could get somebody else finally saying that Savina was a good place. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, nice one. Um, I think we had, uh, I don't know if you've got them up, Santoki, I might have lost them. Um, uh, you know what? I'm just, we, had, we asked people if they wanted to send any questions in, but I'm just mm. looking at them now and actually, in the course of us asking you questions, you've pretty much answered them all so i don't think we've got just double check yeah you've answered them all so, so at that point i guess i can say thank you very much simon uh Santop, do you want to wrap this one up yeah simon thank you very much it was a pleasure to have you on the show your experience of working with jamaica talawas and your clear knowledge for cricket really came out so we really enjoyed having you on do you just want to let our listeners know where they can find you on social media Yes, certainly. Thanks very much for having me, guys. I really appreciate the, you know, the work you've been doing with the podcast. Keep it up because certainly there's a lot of traction, especially in Jamaica with it, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, people that like the questions that Masha likes to the coaching staff, to Lendl Sim well, coach Phil Simmons and also Jason Holder during the press conferences. So it's great from that aspect as well. From, on social media, I'm on Twitter, SimeP93, that's S-I-M-E-Y. P and the numbers nine and three. And I'm on Instagram, Simon.Preston on Instagram and what I'll close by saying is if there was a player to watch in the CPL this year, I would go to the Trinidad and Tobago uh, franchise this season and look at Jaden Seals, former West Indies under-19 fast caller. He's certainly going to be one to watch. Look out for the pace. Rapid. Brilliant. Uh, I'm glad you've given us the one to watch. And actually the very, very final thing, Simon, because somebody did message me today just saying, yeah. is there a way to catch CPL on the radio and I'm not sure if you'd know because I said to them I'm fairly certain one of the Caribbean um, stations will have it which you'll be able to get on the internet but I'm not actually certain which one would carry it I don't know if RJR would do you know if any station would carry CPL yes so KLAS sports radio that's 89 FM in Jamaica they would carry radio coverage of the, the competition from match one to, to match 30 and of course the semi-finals and finals. So KLAS in Jamaica would carry it and you know you can type them in online and you can certainly find online uh, radio stream of it. Yeah. 
brilliant. So for anyone who's listening, that's where you can find some radio commentary if you aren't around a TV at the time of CPL. Simon, as Santoki says, absolutely brilliant guest. And um, I'm hoping you're going to answer yes to this, but say we want you back on. I'm sure you'd want to come on, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Any, <laughs> Fantastic. Because <laughs> your insight uh, on this episode has been amazing. And um, there, there's um, there's some episodes we've got coming up where I think uh, your insight will be uh, very, very valuable on. So um, for those who've uh, enjoyed Simon being on, uh, look forward to him potentially coming on again in the near future. That's been episode 18 of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. Thank you and good night. Word.